This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All righty, let me begin by saying that I can only read a few of Diane's credits because it would take us all night long. So uh, she has done much work in television, movies, on stage. She's been a producer, a director. She's also a book author, most recently for a collection of short stories from 2013 called, this is a wonderful title, A Bad Afternoon for a Piece of Cake. And uh, her nominations for Academy Awards include uh, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Rambling Rose, which also starred her daughter, Laura Dern, uh, she also was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Wild at Heart, which also um, starred Laura Dern. And, of course, she was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh, among her other films, we'll just do the films, Chinatown, 1974, fantastic. Black Widow, Bob Rafelson's film from 1987. Citizen Ruth with Alexander Payne from 1996. That, that was just a favor and a cameo. I didn't take Billy. And that is a weird, funny story. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> to talk about that. Also, Ghosts of Mississippi, Rob Reiner's film from 1996, Primary Colors, with, directed by Mike Nichols, and she also was in uh, David Lynch's Inland Empire, also with Laura Dern, and recently, I know, she has delighted many of us in her role as mother to Laura Dern's character in the HBO series Enlightened. Which is I forgot fantastic. about that. I'm going, wait, what is she talking about? <laughs> a fantastic, fantastic show. So, um, so I get to ask the first question. Okay. I want to ask about the improvisation for this film and your work with Ellen Burstyn. Scorsese took us up to Tucson for a rehearsal. And while we were there, he um, asked us to improvise a lot, which he recorded. And... While we were there, we had uh, someone, Laura was very little, uh, you saw her, she was at the counter with the glasses on in the background in Alice, was her first film to make an appearance in. And in that last scene with Chris Christopherson and all, Laura had to eat 10 ice cream cones for 10 <laughs> takes. And Marty said, your daughter's going to be an actress. He said, anybody who can eat 10 ice cream cones is going to be an actress. <laughs> But he had us improvise, and while we were there, uh, one night my mother came to visit with a friend of ours and brought Laura and my collie dog. There were two beds, and mother and, and her friend. Uh, Maria, they were, because mother didn't want to drive alone, so Maria was a very good friend and part-time housekeeper. She was in that bed, and Laura was in the bed with me. And Laura, like her mother, is a little psychic. So she said, Mommy, can anybody break in here tonight? And I said, oh, no, honey, but just in case, let's say a little prayer. Jesus, Lord, God, Father, and the Holy Spirit be above us, beneath us, left to right, around us, inside, and all spirit of rebellion be gone. So we go to sleep. And in the middle of the night, I hear a noise, like a bed being moved. And I half asleep, sit up, and I turn toward my mother's bed, which is the walls right there in a window, and the curtain was pushed back. 
and a hand with a black glove is going like this toward the latch to try to get it off. And I screamed, what are you doing in my room? And I guess every foul word I ever heard came out of my mouth to attempt to scare him. And he did run. <laughs> and then that was a, a weird night. The next morning, uh, Valerie Curtin, who's a brilliant actress who played Vera, she's a sister to Jane Curtin, and she's also a writer and a fabulous actress. I mean, she was fabulous, wasn't she? And uh, she was dating Barry Levinson at the time, the director. They were in the room next to me, and they heard me crying, and they came over, and I said, I've called the hotel to tell them that somebody just broke in, and they said they can't disturb the manager. He's getting his beauty sleep. <laughs> so I, they, I called the police, and they thought I was a drunk. They wouldn't pay attention. And so Barry and Vera came, they came over, and they, they, they calmed me down. I didn't sleep all night, and I got up the next morning, and poor Martin Scorsese was having his first meeting with the great Marlon Brando for a picture. And I went right over and interrupted him. That was my first meeting with Marlon, who later became a friend. And Marty was very patient. The point of this story is that somebody was breaking in my room, that they knew a movie crew was there, and they were breaking in. We have all these great improvisations, and we leave to go home and come back and start shooting two and a half weeks. When we get there, all of the great improvisations that we had done have been stolen. Those same people had come back and they had been robbing everybody and they took all the improvisations. So now, any improvisations we had to do was on the cuff. For example, um, the scene in the bathroom, uh, Ellen was up for an Academy Award for The Exorcist. And uh, after we did this scene... She took me aside, and Ellen's a wonderful actress and was a friend at the time. And she took me aside and said, I need to talk to you about that scene. I wasn't very good, was I? I said, what do you want to know, Ellen? She said, I failed in that scene. I know I did. What was wrong? Tell me. Tell you. You've got to tell me. I said, what is it you want me to do? She said, we have to get Marty to shoot it over. Was I any good in the scene? Was I good? And I said, no, you weren't. <laughs> she said, why? Truth. I said, Ellen, okay, you've tired. You've been acting a lot. You were so busy feeling sorry for yourself that you did not give the audience a chance to feel sorry for you. She said, what are we going to do? I said, you better go get Marty to try to shoot it over. She said, I can't. You've got to go. I said, what are you talking about? You're the star of this film. You go do it. I'm just a co-star. You go tell him. She said, no, that's why he won't listen to me because I am the star. You've got to go tell him. So Marty's a New York director. With New York directors, you don't talk to them till after lunch. So just before lunch, I said, Marty, when it's convenient, I really need to talk to you. So after lunch, he came over and I said, Marty, we gave you fool's gold in that scene. We could give you real gold. And Ella knows it as well as I do. Won't you please let us shoot it over? He said, Diane, I can't. You know, I'm not a big star director and Warner's is down my back. They're, they're just, they're driving me insane. He said, they're going to pull the plug on me if I don't get through with this movie. And he said, I had to pay the whole bar yesterday to be quiet while you were doing the bathroom scene. I said, well, and I swear to God, I should have known then I wanted to be a director. I said, Marty, listen, I said, you've got two cameramen here. He brought in Kate, uh, Kate um, Kent Wakefield from New York, but the Gill said he had to use a West Coast DP. So now he's got Kent there, so now he's paying two DPs. I said, you got, your other DP is the DP. I said, Ken is a fabulous handheld 
man. Get him to put the damn camera on his back. Marty, let us do it. Get us in there just for one hour. Let us shoot this scene. He said, by God darn, if I get in there and y'all don't do it, I'll kill you. I said, Marty, I'm going to come through. I can't speak for Ellen. (laughs) But I said, don't kill me. He said, if I do this, you better come through. And Ellen and I went in and some of that scene is improvised. We both agreed that when we started talking, you know, like your voice has a wiggle in it. Well, I'm going to tell you, if it has a wiggle in it, maybe you better think of something else to do. That kind of stuff, we were improvising. And we just went for it. And then the scene where we're having a, sitting outside with the sun on our face, that was improvised. Marty, um, the lines about Daddy Duke was all improvised. So, Marty, but you have to have a director who loves you. It's like a marriage. You have to have someone who feels you. Who, when you talk to them, this is why communication is so true. And for me, a script is as true, is truer than life. Because in life, if I'm talking to Cynthia here, I don't know what she's going to say, and I don't know what she's going to do. But with a script on stage or in a film, I know what they're going to say, but I don't know what they're going to do. They might say, I love you, and slap me. I don't know what's going to happen, but you got half the truth. You know the lines. So to me, films are bringing great truths to us human beings and great opportunities for us to see ourselves. And Marty Scorsese is one of the greatest directors that I have ever worked with and for in my life. And this is a synchronistic night tonight because uh, after 30 years of trying to get a very important film made that I wrote, I do write a lot, and... I had this film once in a partnership with Jane Fonda at Columbia, and they fired the head of Columbia. I had it in a film with another famous producer who stole one of my characters and made a big movie. Uh, I could have sued him, but he already had five lawsuits on the docket. So after 30 years and spending a bloody fortune, it's very hard to get the men in the profession to read a film script by a woman, especially one who's an actress. I'm not playing the tiniest violin for Diane Ladd. I'm just telling you how it is. We thought that this movie would help bring back roles for women. We all thought that that would make it happen, like the old Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and Claudette Colbert and all these great women's roles. It didn't happen. I'm still trying. My daughter's trying. And I do have a film called Woman Inside about the great Martha Mitchell, who was married to John Mitchell, Attorney General, during the Watergate. And Watergate wasn't really about Watergate, folks. So we have this script, and Martin Scorsese has agreed to be my executive producer. So they're going to help me raise the money. I want every one of you out there to go home tonight and talk to your angels. Say, get Marty moving, talking to Diane's angels. Get that money for her, okay? So let's go on with the Q&A. But it was so synchronistic (laughs) that Cynthia asked me to be here tonight when all of this is just happening. You know, I don't believe there's coincidence. I believe there's opportunities, and we have free choice. But to me, this was very symbolic, and I thank all of you for having me here tonight. So now... Okay, so I have to ask you how you first met Martin Scorsese and how you got this part in this film. I had done another little film. My first film was Wild Angels for Roger Corman. And it was a Venice Film Festival selection, and I won an award. And uh, it was a motorcycle film. 
with Bruce Dern, my then husband, and uh, Peter Fonda, Nancy Sinatra. And then after that, there was another motorcycle film that we did called uh, Rebel Rousers with Jack Nicholson and Cameron Mitchell and a host of favorites. And a critic who saw me in that little film said to Martin Scorsese, I've seen an actress that you've got to talk to for your movie. And Marty called me, and that's how I got my, my... I went in and found out that Ellen was starring. I was shocked. And I said, wow, okay, well, here I am, and I had to audition. And I think there was some jealousies at the time between myself and Ellen that when I said to her in the reading, you don't really like me, do you? She says, not really. I said, that's okay, honey. I've been done in by kings in my time. Those little words had a lot behind them. <laughs> so we, I got the job. Ma, I got the job. And was very grateful for it and loved working with Scorsese. One of the great God-given chances of my whole life. Uh, it won me the British Academy Award. I lost the American Oscar to the great Ingrid Bergman. And I won the British Academy Award in the mother country over Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> so Marty has brought me a great deal of good in my life. I'm very grateful to him. So, and it looks like you just had the time of your life on that film. Well, you know, this was uh, Jodie Foster's first big movie. And she almost stole the whole picture. Wasn't she great? She was great. And the kid was great. And uh, Harvey Keitel, who plays Ben, the one who uh, beats up his wife, he's one of the world's greatest actors. I saw him off-Broadway with George C. Scott do Death of a Salesman. And I promise you, he gave George C. Scott a run for his money. He was magnificent. He's a, he, he should be as big a star or bigger than Bobby De Niro. Bobby's a great uh, actor, but so is Harvey. And um, I was just so pleased to work with him and all of the stars. Um, the girl who plays uh, his wife, Rita, starred mm -hmm. as Baby June on Broadway in Gypsy. And she's a great actress. All of these, most of these actors were actor studio method actors. And Marty really encouraged a lot of them to bring their souls and put them on the, the screen, to, to really get into the character and birth this character. Most of us, as method actors, spin a circle to find that part of me, if I'm playing you. I spin this circle once I read about you. What part of me is like you? Because there's so many sides of us that are like each other. I sometimes, the older I get, I do believe that we're all one person, all cells in God's body, all part of God. And if that's true, then we're gods in school, and we have to look at the fact that very few people graduate. So we really need to kick a little dirt while we're here. The actor's job is to reflect you. I am a mirror in whatever part I play, saint or sinner, glamorous or plain or crazy or sane, I play you, my human race, my human being, fellow beings, in every part I do. And I find that part of me that's like you, and I spin it, and I focus. If you're frying chicken, you don't grill a steak. If you're doing fish, you don't fry the chicken. So you focus on that part of yourself and let that part come out. I'm sure that each one of you have friends that make you feel like a prince or a hero, right? And then there's other people that make you feel like a scumbag or you're not worthy or can't do it. How is that possible when you're the same person? 
Well, it's because everybody walks to a beat of a different drum and everybody affects us differently. And as an actor, I have to find that to bring, to birth the character. And I have to pray to God that I have a director who lets me do it and helps me, doesn't hurt me. So this picture was a great experience, Alice. And most of the actors really worked together. And I did have a ball. Um, my father's name was Preston Paul. So when I said my daddy's pee-pee and he says, call me, don't call me pee-pee because I'm all urine. That was a line that he used to say that I threw into the movie. So a lot of things like that Marty let us bring to the table. And as playing a waitress, I worked so hard at waitering, waitressing on everybody that some of the extras said, Honey, are, are you an actress or are you a waitress? <laughs> Questions? We can open it up. Yes. Questions? Um, regarding the cross made of safety pins, was it something that you had involvement in picking or was it just handed to you? And what is your personal Ooh, take on it? What a good eye you have. That's how you create a role. Um, I actually saw that necklace on a waitress in a coffee shop. And I said to her, honey, where'd you get that necklace? She said, I made it myself. I said, you did? I said, would you sell it to me? She says, well, I would, but it cost a lot of money. I said, how much would you cost me? She said, $10. I said, you got it. So I bought that from her, and I showed it to the director and the costumer, and I said, I'm wearing this as part of my costume, the whole movie. They said, great. And I threw, threw in that line in the improv in the bathroom. You see this? It's made of safety pins, and that's what holds me together. It was a total ad-lib improv. You know, and then writers say, a lot of writers will say, actors should just say the lines and not, and not ad lib. <laughs> Bull ticky. When I'm, I directed a movie, and I, I'm the first woman in history, the only woman in history to direct her ex-husband. I had Bruce Duren star in a film called Mrs. Monk, and it got great reviews and won me three Best Director Awards. And I got double-crossed by the producers at the back that they had sold it here in America to... Uh, to um, Showtime, and they wouldn't reduce the price. They wanted a first-time show, so I learned very hard to read the little print in the contract. It, was, it broke my heart. But um, that, that necklace, thank you for noticing that, was uh, something I contributed to the film, and I was very, very proud of it. Question? I think it matched your hair. <laughs> your hair... Um... Piece. That was all mine. That wasn't no hair piece. That was no, all I mean my the, hair. The, um, the thing, thing the that back. held your hair up. Oh, I, yeah. I bought a thing like it to, hold, to pin in my hair sometimes, yeah. And, uh, but it was wonderful to be able to explore. You know, we, we said to, to, to Marty, won't you please show her with Daddy Duke? You know, show her. So he, Marty threw in that scene of her climbing on the motorcycle so you could see Daddy Duke. I mean, that's, that's a contribution that you can make. You know, I've had a few great directors. It's hard to find greatness in anything in life, even if you're cooking a meal. You know, and I always tried to teach my daughter, Laura, go the extra mile, Laura. If somebody drops a match on the floor, hey, pick it up and throw it away. You're not the loser. You're the winner. You're the winner for giving the extra to life. And Laura, who I'm very proud to say I think is an extremely accomplished actress and mother, 
in her own right because she has followed that path. She does a great deal for humanity whenever she has any time. But that's my motto, whether it's the work you do. And um, when, I, when I go to do a movie, honey, I would take all my own makeup. I'd take all my own props just in case there's something I need that nobody thought of. All your makeup, all the bobby pins, anything for your hair, and anything that I thought might add to that part. I would look for it and I'd bring it down with me. They'd say, oh yeah, she's a method actress. <laughs> well, I'm also a performer. I've sang, I've danced, I've been a copa girl. I think that the more you can do in life and the more avenues that you can enjoy, the more you can learn, I think it makes you a richer person. It's a short life, but it's also a long one. And it can be a great one, no matter how much pain or sadness you have, because none of us get off scot-free. This is a school, and we don't get away without opening a few books. Question? Yes, ma'am, right here. I love how you, it, you involve your daughter, even at the, the youngest age, and then it sounds like there's this wonderful reciprocal relationship that's, that's continued on till the present. Can you talk about what it's like to work with your daughter? Or oh, my God, it's fabulous to work with her. Be, uh, she and I work very differently. Uh, one of the funniest times was when we were doing A Wild at Heart. And there's a scene where Nicolas Cage is supposed to be in jail, locked up. And she's sitting there on the bench in jail, crying. And I arrive with a fellow to come and comfort her. And I take her in my arms, and we're both just sobbing. And when the director, David Lynch, said, cut, and we looked up, I realized I knew what she was using for that scene to make her cry. And she looked at me. And she realized she knew what I was using for that scene to make me cry. And we were both in so embarrassed that we felt like we were caught with our hand in the cookie jar. And we both started laughing like we were insane. So the crew was looking at us like maybe we were crazy or something. But I think, um, you know, the chess game that you play, chess is an interesting game. I'm not very good at it because I'm so emotional. I start off great and everybody thinks, wow, look at her. And then I get bored. And I just want to just get through with it, you know. But the chess game was a game that Zarathustra invented to entertain the king. And it's called the Game of Kings. And each piece on that board represents life. The king, the queen, the pawn, the bishop, an element of life. And the two knights represent love and work. Because love and work is the only piece that can jump over other obstacles. So you should have some love for some of your work that you do. We're not always in the position. I've had to take a lot of parts I didn't like to pay the rent or because there wasn't anything else available. But if you can get a part you love, that's the joy. All the work you love, even if it's scrubbing a floor, turn on some music and enjoy the moment if you can. Because uh, when you can work with love, it's fantastic. I, and I, I watch if I go into a butchery in New York and I, I see a man say, this is my son who works with me. Or a millinery and the woman is saying, this is my daughter who works with me. So to be able to work with someone that you love is an amazing opportunity. 
My ex-husband, Bruce Dern, when I was directing me on the film, I told him that he was a terrible husband, but a magnificent actor. And he and I had a silver bowl that the actor's studio had given us because we had worked together uh, in New York in a play, in TV, and in movies. And we had that beautiful silver bowl. And even to this day, we can work. We could not live together. I'd be an old alcoholic on a hill. <laughs> but I can tell you this, to work with him and utilize my gift with the gift the universe gave him is an amazing opportunity. And uh, we love it. When I work with any actor or actress that has it and respects professionally the other person and gives and takes like Olympia Dukakis I've worked with. Oh, she's fantastic. Our timing is like frickin' frack. It's really great. And there are a lot of actors. Bob Duval, I had that privilege to work with him. So many wonderful people in the business. And I told Cynthia that one of the reasons I would come out and talk to people is because I am concerned about the next generation of actors and directors and writers. We have a thing in this country called runaway productions, and it's caused by greed and corruption. Now in my country, we have uh, medicine that has some big problems. We have politics that has some big problems. And show business has some big problems. These are the three main industries, and education is in all three. They're like Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Adma Buddha Manas. And so, if I can come and talk, and I pray to God, there's another Marlon Brando out there, or Betty Davis somewhere, to come forward to bring an amazing gift like they had to us. But here's the problem. You have, when Marlon and them worked, you had 35 movies being made every single week in this country. Now, if you get 35 movies made a year in this country, we're doing good. All of the studios are only making, like Paramount's making, eight pictures this year. Each one cost $100 million. So they better have enough violence to shake up people while they're eating their popcorn. And they might have one or two good women's roles. Not very many. If I get a role now offered to me that's good, usually it's a grandmother or something. And or I'm a dope addict or a whore. Or God have me. Uh, or I've been dead a hundred years, you know. So if, if we're going to have, when I started out, I could do a small part in a movie. I got to meet Spencer Tracy. I got to meet Betty Davis. I got to watch these masters work at their craft. And I, a little punk beginner, got to absorb some of this great energy into the cells in my body. That's not happening now. Because when a big picture goes to Canada, I've had to work there seven times. Or Prague, or Spain, or France, or England, all of them who have great tax incentives, we don't. They take three stars, maybe, and all those other magnificent parts are going to their country's actors and actresses. So our country's actors and actresses are not getting the opportunity to, to um, practice their art and their craft. Our major studios have studios over there that give them incentives and camera people and the wardrobe houses, so they make a fortune. Do you know how much money you're losing every 10 years? Been going on for 40 years. Every decade, you're losing from this country to other countries' pockets at least two and one half billion dollars. 
and your state of California, show business is the number one industry in this country. And it started in America, show business. But now other countries make more money than we do. Canada has built seven stadiums with the money from our runaway productions. And California, where this business started, I'm going to go make my big picture. I'm trying to get a little help now with a little picture, a million-dollar picture. The big one's $20 million with 195 scenes and 118 actors. I'm going to do that movie. I have to go to Louisiana or Georgia or Mississippi. The film commissioner from Mississippi came out and took me to lunch. Georgia, they'll get on the phone. I can't even get this film commissioner on the phone here. That's right. Something's wrong with that picture. And they just passed a little dinky bill. Well, they say it's better than nothing. I don't know that it's better than nothing. I don't know that. But you all should give anybody that loves show business or connected to it should write letters to Jerry Brown. Say, why don't we have the tax incentives that Louisiana? Why aren't we making films here? I've done my share. That man sitting right there, my husband, Robert Hunter, and I, in 2001, after the tower was collapsed, I had my investment money. But after the investment, the, the tower thing happened in New York, and I was in New York when it happened. In fact, I was supposed to have a lunch at the tower that day. Never made it, of course. Thank God it wasn't a breakfast thing. So um, I, when I came back, my investor left. Nobody knew what was happening. And so I went to a gathering of the United States of America Chamber of Commerce in Florida. My husband, a businessman, had been on their board before I met him. And so the president, Tom Donahue, said to me, Diane, let me ask you a question. I mean, all the other wives are talking about suits and does and whatever. And of course, the actress, I'm pulled aside to ask, why aren't they making better films in Hollywood? And I answer, well, ask me this. I answered a question with a question. Why aren't they making films in Hollywood, period? And after I told Tom Donahue what was happening, he said, why are you people in show business marching in the streets? I said, and you people in Congress and all out there think that we act as like cigars with $100 bills. It ain't true, McGee. Out of 120,000 actors, for example, never mind all the other crews and show business people, 120,000 actors and screen actors Gill. The last uh, poll that was taken, 3,000 members only made $100,000 or better. And when an actor makes 100000 he spends 50% of it approximately on the people he hires. The business manager, the lawyer, the press agent, the home and the hum and the hum. And that doesn't include your own secretary or running your own business. So if you earn 100 you pay off 50 and you get 50 so, out of 120,000, 3,000 make 100 or better. 87,000 at the last poll made less than a $10,000 a year poverty wage. 32,000 didn't make one dime in the business. And yet we're losing $2.5 billion in runaway productions. And we have to fight for our independent movies. Some of them are up for Oscars. So for those of you in show business, hey, I fought. We went to Washington 17 times in three years. We found one needle in a haystack. She's in heaven now. Congresswoman Karen McCarthy. Everybody else said, when you get a bill, come to us. She said, what are you talking about? Your, your taxes pay for these bills. So she helped us draw up a bill. And we drew up a bill, and then we got 14 congressmen to come on board. And we dropped the bill. And then a miracle happened. It was a tale at the right time 
into a big bill that was being passed and we slipped in. We got the only tax incentive passed. We have one federal tax incentive. If you do a movie, it has to be over $2 million to keep porno out. You do a movie for $20 million or less. Well, $15 million or $20 million in a deprived area, but right now every area is deprived. So $20 million, you have a carrot for an investor. Your investor, if you invest in your film from $2,100,000 on up to $20 million, that investor can depreciate that investment in the same year that the investment is made. That's all we've got, kids. And that man right there helped do that for you. And that's it. That's the only tax incentive. It's sound 2004 in December. I have a new website coming up for um, Art and Culture Task Force uh, because the two people leading it passed away, Karen McCarthy and then a lawyer. She was misdiagnosed with cancer. She's gone. And so I'm doing the whole website over. It'll be up in the next month or two. It's called the Art and Culture Task Force. And it's here to help education and the professional actor as well as the amateur. It's to help promote culture, education, and literacy in this country. And we have a literacy poster man named Ed Bray, who's 92 years old, and he was a war hero. He landed on the beach in Normandy, and he was 88 years old before anybody found out, even with two awards, congressional awards, as a soldier, he could not read. He did not know how to read. He read his first book a year ago, a third-grade reader about Dick and Spot and Jane. So he's our poster man for literacy. So if you go to my website, dianelad.com, in the next month, it'll tell you how to go to Art and Culture Task Force. And there may be things on there that can help you. I hope so. Any other question before I say goodnight? So you get a lot of energy from the collaborative work of film, but you're also writing... Where Shorts. are you? This is Joe. Oh, oh, hi. Hey. hey. Uh, you get a lot of work from ener- energy from working in film and collaboratively, but you're also writing novels and sh- or short stories and, and books. I have a Different health- energy. Can you tell me about that? Well, I have a health book out first. It's a, it's a, a health book. Um, I've always been interested in health. My great-grandmother was a um, midwife who became a doctor. My father was a veterinarian. I traveled with my father from the age of five and a half on in Mississippi. My cousin's Tennessee Williams. I'm not Alan Ladd's daughter, but I'm Tennessee Williams' cousin. So I traveled with my father, and he helped farmers in five states. He was a great man, a humble man. And traveling with him in Mississippi when I was a kid, I saw children, forget TV, they didn't have a radio. And a lot of them didn't have shoes to put on their feet. And once I saw Indians cooking grass because they had nothing to eat. And I knew then that something was terribly wrong in my great country. And I promised God if he would help me, I would help his people. And I've tried to do that. Now, I come by health naturally, as I said. And then um, I had a great tragedy. My first husband, Bruce Dern, and I lost our beloved daughter, two years old, in a tragic accident. May none of you ever have to go through that. I then tried to get pregnant immediately to replace the child so desperately, and my body was in shock, and I had what they call a tubular pregnancy, and I almost died. And after that, five top doctors said, I'm sorry, Diane Ladd, you will never have another child. It is impossible. 
And I said, I will. I will. I will. I knew that everything out there, every plane that that flies, every building that we made, every chair sitting here, every book written, all the microphones, everything is in us. We, ha- we are the- these bodies, our soul, our spirit, we are amazing creatures, and we forget how wonderful we are. So I set out, hoping that I will would come true. And while Shirley McLean and Ellen Burstyn were getting my jobs, <laughs> I was in a library reading about the human body for two solid years, and that's the truth. And when I got through, I went on a two-week thing, gave myself a diet, And at the end of it, I went to my doctor and I said, please make your test. I think I'm pregnant. Mm. And he got angry. He said, Diane, I've told you that you can't have another child. Now go home and cry. (laughs) I said, I have cried. Oh, believe me, I have cried. Now you go make your test. And the rabbit died. And they were so scared that it was another tubal pregnancy. They monitored me a lot. And when my daughter, they took her cesarean to make sure nothing would go wrong. And when Laura Elizabeth Dern was born, she was my miracle child. And one of those five doctors who said I could never have a child came to that hospital to see for themselves. And when they opened me up and took the baby, they, I was stayed on the table for four solid hours while they removed 16 major adhesions intertwined around my female organs. And that other doctor had come down and said, I heard him, I heard him. He said, my God, my God, he said, this is impossible that that baby got through. This is a miracle. And they were in there digging around. I'd had a spinal and passed out because I'm a coward. And my head raised up off the table. And I said, that's right. It's a miracle. And it's a hell of a lot of hard work. And I passed back out. (laughs) So I wrote my first book called Spiraling Through the School of Life. And Louise Hay published it. And it's a mental, physical, and spiritual journey to find your own miracles. That was the first book. The second book, which has been published and got one of the greatest reviews in the history of this country, called Bad Afternoon for a Piece of Cake, I just found out that my publisher was stealing all my money. So nobody ever said it'd be easy. So I got my rights back. And God uses me this way. I found out that he's been like shuffling the papers for 20 years. And other writers called me and said, oh, Miss Ladd, he, they, he called me and said, how would you like to go on a book tour with Diane Ladd? Give me $6,000 and I'll do your book. So I was used for him to rip off other people. So the story's not over yet, but I got all my rights back. And I'm going to get that book out again under my own company's name, Excel Press. And you can buy it on my website, dianelad.com. And I will tell you that two great writers, one of them being the critic Rex Reed, compared your friend, this writer, to Truman Capote, Flannery O'Connor, Carson McCullers. Hmm, I'm forgetting somebody. Truman Capote, I think I said. And my cousin, Tennessee Williams, says I have the same gift they do. So here's the trick. Short stories can take you out of your body and heal you just like a glass of wine or traveling 50 miles away. So the short stories is my gift to you. And the script that Marty's going to do is a script that I wrote 14 times with a partner. I got five other scripts sitting in my office, but I can't even start to work on them till I get my big movie, Woman Inside Made. 
So any gift that you have, I don't care if it's sewing or cooking or you get rejected, but if you believe in yourself, don't ever give up. And if it's meant for you, it will happen this lifetime or the next, okay? So the, 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 that's all, folks. Thank you. Thank you all. Okay. And I want to thank these great people for, for doing things like this, for honoring such a great da- director as Scorsese. Matt, all of you are fantastic. Cynthia, every one of you are so fantastic. And I am privileged and pleasured to be here with you tonight and share. God bless you. And don't forget to say your prayer for me tonight. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.